Hey, thanks for joining us. This is Charlie Lawson, pastor at the Grove Church, and we are in the middle of a deep dive on the book of Proverbs. A couple of weeks ago, we just kind of did a general overview of kind of the book of Proverbs and some people's favorite book and some people's not so favorite book. It's very straightforward and easy to understand, but at the same time, it's a little random and a little, and a little hard. Can you completely trust it? And, you know, there's just kind of some weird things about it. So we did a little overview a couple of weeks ago and the process came up with a handful of questions that kind of just help us to really understand it a little bit better. And the first one was... When we talk about a proverb, that a proverb is a bit of wisdom said in a pithy way that is generally true rather than absolutely true. And we're used to approaching scripture with a sense of it being absolutely true. And so what do we do with it when it's not? And so we spent some time talking about that last week. And next week, we're just going to give, we're going to get a little more practical and say, hey, when it is just kind of random and it's not as organized as a lot of Western thinking normally is. How do I best approach studying and reading it? But this week, we're going to spend a little bit time talking about the author. Because one of the biggest challenges that I think that a lot of us have mentally when we're approaching some of the, uh, some of the Old Testament books is how we feel about the author. And this guy, Solomon, he was not some great, perfect guy, some, some, some person to be admired, some person that you need to uh, model your life after. And he wrote three books of the scripture, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And we've got this book that supposedly is full of all of this great wisdom, but written and compiled by somebody who we would look at and not say that is someone who is living a life of great wisdom that demonstrates a lot of wisdom. And so how do we then, how do we, how do we process it? What is the right way to process reading a book of scripture? When there's a part of you that rightly so says, I'm not sure that I really trust this author. And so to recap some things we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who is Solomon? Well, he was the third king of Israel and Israel, after it came out of Egypt, after being enslaved for several hundred years through Moses and Joshua, God leads them to the promised land and to take over what ultimately became the country of Israel. And they were ruled essentially as a theocracy for quite some time where God was their king and God appointed varying judges at different times and different seasons to kind of bring a little political order to the country. But ultimately, they were not ruled by a king. They were ruled by God. And after a season, they began to get jealous of some of the countries that were around them that they had a king. And they reached and they basically began to cry out to a prophet that God had appointed kind of as a primary judge and overseer, a guy named Samuel. They cried out to him, we want a king so we can be like everybody else. It upset Samuel very much and ultimately it upset God, but God gave them what they wanted, which again is a great principle. Uh, be careful for asking for God things that really aren't the best for you because sometimes he'll give them to you, which is what he ultimately did. And God had Samuel anoint a king, a guy named Saul, who looked the part, was very tall, very handsome, very strong, but ultimately was a cruel king and ultimately completely and totally disobeyed God by um, making sacrifices um, that, that God had said that only a priest can make. And so God cut him off and said he was no longer going to be the king and the king was not going to pass through his lineage, but God was going to appoint another king from another family. And then Samuel finds um, a guy named David and anoints him to be the next king. And after Saul passes away, um, David rises to the throne and becomes the second king of a united Israel. And then David passes 
the kingship on after his death to his son Solomon, which is the guy that we find here. And in our very early introductions to who uh, who Solomon is, we get this story and it's told two different times in two different ways. And if you don't know this about Old Testament history, we have first and second Samuel and first second Kings, those four books, which can really be considered one big book that tells the story of Israel. And then right after that, you have first and second Chronicles, which if you have not noticed, essentially starts over at where first and second Samuel starts and tells that story again. And so you've got two different versions of the same story that are coming at it from different perspectives, both true, but telling it from different perspectives. And we're going to look today at both perspectives here that kind of give us our first intro into who Solomon is. And so the first one is in Second Chronicles 1, and the second is in First Kings 4. In Second Chronicles 1, starting in verse 7, it says this, That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father, David, be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor the death of your enemies... And so you've not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I've made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you, and I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will ever have. So there's a story where, you know, God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom and God grants him wisdom. He gives him this special the special dispensation of wisdom. And through this special dispensation of wisdom, he's supposedly going to become one of the greatest, most wisest kings of all time. And God says, in addition to that, through that wisdom, you're going to become very powerful and very wealthy. And it's described this way in 1 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. Oh, look at that, proverbs. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles, and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So he has this encounter with God where this happens, and he, God gives him this great dispensation of wisdom. And then ultimately, he's described in First Kings as having more wisdom than a whole lot of other people, more than anybody in the East, more than anybody in Egypt, and describing these other people who are incredibly wise, that he was wiser than them, people that we don't really know about, but obviously would have been known to the audience, that that Solomon had an overwhelming amount of wisdom and that this wisdom came directly from God. And if that's all the information that we had, and we knew that Proverbs was a book of pithy statements meant to dispense wisdom, to tell us things about life that are generally true and give us the best advice, on the, on, on the best way to approach life, to understand the best advice on making decisions. And he's like, man, this guy was given this great wisdom by God. 
and he wrote this book, Proverbs, you would naturally then want to to read all of this. Man, the mo- one of the most powerful, wealthiest people to ever live on the planet, and he's given out advice. I want that advice, especially if I know that this wisdom came directly from God. But that is not all that is known about Solomon. Thus, his reign would not be it would not be described. I wouldn't say, and most people would not say that his reign is not characterized by wisdom. And again, in these two stories in Chronicles and Kings, it kind of gives two different perspectives on ultimately what happened to Solomon. Why did his reign not go well? Why was the kingdom of Israel? He was the third king of Israel, and there was not a fourth. After that, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms, a southern kingdom called Judah and a northern kingdom that was called Israel. That kingdom was split into two and never reunited again. And how can the wisest king not have even passed on his kingdom to even one generation? His, his kingdom, his reign would be considered a failure. And so how then do we then wrestle with the fact that he was supposedly so wise? Well, again, the, the answer to this question comes from a couple of different perspectives, um, from Chronicles and from, and from Kings. And the first one from, from Chronicles really highlights kind of the sexual promiscuity, ultimately, of his father David and of Solomon. If you're not familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, David, who is king, doesn't go out to war with his army like he's supposed to, but when he's on the roof, he spies a woman um, who is bathing on the roof and decides he wants to have sex with her and summons her to the palace, has sex with her, gets her pregnant, tries to make it look like where her husband who was off at war is the one that did it by bringing him back, but he won't sleep with her. So ultimately he has the husband killed and makes her his wife, which is a terrible story. Essentially the king summoning you to his palace to have sex is not optional. So it really feels more like a rape story and, and, and with with adultery, rape, abandonment of his responsibilities as head of the army, and ultimately um, murder. And it sets David on a path, and it sets David on a path that ultimately leads to his kids, um, a lot of infighting, even more rape and murder amongst his children, and his family is falling apart. In the midst of that, then after that, Solomon takes over, and even though he is Um, by some of these descriptions, incredibly wise and has this wisdom from God, does not seem to learn from his father's mistakes and ultimately um, has more wives and more sexual promiscuity than even his dad did, ultimately being described as having hundreds, hundreds of wives and concubines, which is it's it's really hard to even put your mind around that. And um, so it's described essentially in that first telling of the story as a story of 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 sexual failure family failure in that regard. And that makes this family fall apart, which if that's the case and you think, man, how, how do you not know better than this? If you're so wise, how do you not avoid this? Well, the second set of reasons that are given that are found in Kings ultimately has less to do with this sexual promiscuity and more to do with idolatry and the accumulation of power and wealth. God said that he was going to make him powerful and make him wealthy. But you begin to see the attitude of Solomon being like, that is the purpose of him being king. He's not king to be a wise and fair and loving king. He's not there to listen to and follow God. The purpose there is to build his wealth, to build his kingdom, to build his power and his influence. And so we see what he does is he makes these treaties with all of these opposing nations, which makes him wealthy, which makes him more powerful. 
but he takes in these wives from these other places. And again, the emphasis here is not on the sexuality of it, of being, of having multiple wives, but more to do with now you've got these other people from these other places who are, who worship different gods and his heart and his mind and his family begins to be split, worshiping other gods. And he becomes obsessed with his own personal power and his wealth. He is building up a kingdom in his name more than he is building a kingdom in God's name. And he builds this temple for God, which is like, man, why are you giving him such a hard time? This dude, he built, he built a temple. It's like, it's even called that. It's called Solomon's temple. Well, you can call it Solomon's temple and it was an incredible piece of architecture. But when you recognize that the scale of the size of the temple that he builds for God compared to the size of his own palace, which dwarfs it, we recognize and what we see with, with Solomon is that he is significantly more interested in building his own reputation, his own power, and his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And so no matter which combination of those two it is, again, even though we have just learned at the beginning of his reign that he has this overwhelming amount of wisdom given to him directly by God in both the way he pursued life sexually and the way he pursued self over his people and self over worship and following God, we see someone who is not living a life of wisdom the way that we expect. We see someone who is living a life of selfish pursuit. And so maybe I guess what you could say is, if you are really wise and pursuing yourself, pursuing a life devoted to yourself, then Solomon, I guess, was pretty wise because the decisions that he made, both uh, sexually and the decisions that he made with these other countries and the way that he did treaties and taking on these wives, it built his power. He became powerful and strong and influential and wealthy. And so if that was the goal, then I guess he was wise. But even still, the fact that it did not last one generation after his death says that even in being a selfish pursuer, he was not incredibly wise because he didn't seem to be able to see past his own lifetime. And so we would expect someone who was wise to be wise about the number of wives that he has, one. We would expect him to be wise in making sure in the number of gods that he worships, also one. And we would expect him to not be about the overwhelming pursuit of power and self, but of pursuit of God and the betterment of others. And then ultimately, we would also expect someone to be wise who is a king to be thinking about legacy. But he fails in four, what I would say, very crucial ways. And again, he made some pretty significant decisions. He, he, there are definitely some things where it seems like he was successful, but he was not wise in the way that most you know, spirit-filled Christians would say, this is a godly, wise person. And so when it's described like that, that, that um, Solomon maybe is the wisest man who ever lived, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging or anything, but I look at his story and I think, I'm wiser than that guy. And I wouldn't consider myself, you know, top 10 or anything. I mean, I don't know what percentile I would put myself in, but even still, I mean, I look around me and I see lots of people with just one wife pursuing God in a power in a, in a, in a really good way who are concerned about the legacy that they're living with their kids. He's like, man, they are demonstrating a significant amount of wisdom 
compared to Solomon. And so the question is, after a very long rant, what are we even supposed to do with that? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, this is really, for me, in part, I would say it's an unanswered question. I, I still have questions on this. What I'm about to give you, if the answer I give you is a little unsatisfactory, I want you to know that you're only agreeing with me. Because this is, this is real. Like how, how is it that someone could be so full of God's wisdom and live this life this way? But as partially unsatisfactory as it is, I think this will help us a long way into understanding the heart and mind of God and ultimately why it would seem that the average Christian that you know seems to be more wise than Solomon. So um, the first thing that I would say is I think it's important for us to understand that ultimately God will use anyone. God will use anyone. Like, like, like there's not this sense of which that there are these like disqualifying things that like once you commit this terrible sin, God is done with you. That, that God will show himself and use vessels that are in people that are completely and totally imperfect and imperfect in ways that are shocking to us. One of the jokes that I like to make is that when people talk about that they're a good person, they say, well, I've never killed anybody. Ha ha ha, which is a low bar. But the interesting thing about that being a low bar is that there are several authors in scripture who do not meet that bar. David was a murderer. Um, Moses was a murderer. Paul was a murderer, you know, and at least with Paul, Paul was before he had converted to following God. But it was um, really still, though, I mean, like we just think of that as this ultimate disqualifier or just way more murderers involved in writing of scripture than we would anticipate. And I think that's something that we have to put our mind around, because I think ultimately it shows the kind of person that God is willing to use, which is anyone whose heart is willing. And it shows the power of the awesome forgiveness and grace of God. The second thing that I would say is that um, perfect messages can come from imperfect people. I, th- I, think, I think especially in the culture we live in right now, I think this is especially important. Can someone that you disagree with also be right about something else? I think right now it's like you are either 100% with me or 100% against me. And even if you manage to somehow do something or say something right one time, if you disagree with me about this or you're bad in this way, then you, then I completely and totally dismiss you, which is a very horrible way. And it, and it infects our politics and infects the people, the books that we read, the people that we trust, the businesses that we want to do business with, but I can own that we have some overwhelming purity test. Even if Solomon was a complete and total failure in some areas, the wisdom that comes out of his mouth, you read the book of Proverbs, and I tell you what, your life is going to improve drastically. And so the fact that he's an imperfect person does not mean that great advice can't come from that. Again, especially recognizing the dual authorship of scripture, where not only the imperfect human is, is speaking, but God is speaking through them. And again, God will use anyone. And the third thing that I would say really has to do with a little, throw a little New Testament theology in here is that there is a sense in which you need to understand, we all need to understand that the, the wisest person who does not have the Holy Spirit inside them is still a, a self, selfish, greedy, lustful person. And a person without near the wisdom of Solomon, but has this presence of, in the Spirit of God dwelling inside them 
is going to be and is going to experience in a lot of ways a significantly higher amount of wisdom than someone without, even someone like Solomon. But even though that wisdom came from God, he was not indwelled with the Holy Spirit in the way that Christians are. And so he had all of this great wisdom and had these great instincts about what the results would be of certain decisions, but made a decision to use those to pursue his selfish, greedy lusts. And so we need to understand that is the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's presence in someone like you and someone like me can make someone who may not have a whole lot of natural wisdom or this great influx of wisdom of, uh, that comes directly from God. You can still live a significantly wise life because you've got the Holy Spirit's presence in you. And so even though this is an imperfect person, even though he seemed to, in some very significant areas of his life, misuse his wisdom and his, the, the ability to have to understand what would happen in the decisions that he makes, and he used these things to pursue gain, the wisdom is still there. And God is still willing to use someone who is imperfect. And I think that should more, at least as much as it makes us kind of raise an eyebrow about the book of Proverbs. It should give us a lot of comfort as well to know that God is still in the, has always been in the business of using imperfect people to bring his perfect message out there. And with God's spirit inside you, you have the capacity to live a life of great wisdom. And again, that begins with the fear of God and is greatly benefited by understanding uh, more deeply uh, the depth of the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs. Thanks again for joining us. We've got one more next week um, on the book of Proverbs. We're going to be looking at we kind of just a practical way of approaching and studying and understanding it. Appreciate you for joining us. You can find out more about us at thegrovechurch.org. And we would love to see you sometime on Sunday, either live or online. Thanks again for joining us.